Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. That'll hook you up with all sorts of things. You can not only do it by heading over there, but I also wanted to remind you about the QR code, which is sitting right over here. That QR code is a direct link into the Office Hours question system. Now, it's not going to put you fully into Mukana, which is the system we use not only to take in your questions, let you write them out, but also put you in the queue for voting and for discussion during the course of the show. So if you want to join the little community that talks about the show every day, go through the regular thing. But if you want to just ask a question, and we've made it as easy as possible through the QR code, use any device that'll shoot a QR code. It'll take you right to that question queue. You can put your question in, and then it gets into the mix with everybody else. It gets moved over. Uh, so that's the process. Today in our second hour, we're looking forward. We have a very special guest, Calvin Roberts, who is an old friend of Alex's who has done a lot of video production on five continents at times in war zones. So if you've ever been interested in what it takes to kind of work out in very difficult circumstances, uh, Calvin's the person you want to ask your questions of. He's also worked on feature films and more, and he's going to talk to us about all of his journeys literally all over the globe shooting videos. So it should be a fascinating second hour. That's our second hour today. But here we're in our first hour and ready for your questions. So, Mitch, what's our first question for today? Thank you, Bill. First up, our friend Guy Cochran from Seattle, USA. What's the state of AV-1 and where is it going? John Preto is going to start us off. Well, AV-1 just got a big shot in the arm with uh, Apple's announcement of the, of the codec included into the iPhone 15 Pro. Uh, I think AV1 is going to win the war because would you rather pay for a less efficient codec or use AV1 for free? So I'm very bullish on AV1. Alex, your thoughts? It's the future. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I have to admit, I'm so in so many conversations with AV1 with so many different people. I'm not sure what I can and can't say. So I'm going to not, not get into details, but a lot of people are supporting AV1. And I think that you can see that through the, the AV1 decoder from Apple's uh, phone and the, um, the, the fact that you're starting to see hardware support for that. The challenge with AV1 and why that decoder is so important is that it does take a lot more processor um, time to decode it and encode it. So what we're trading off with AV1 is, hey, we need a little bit more horsepower to encode it and decode it, but it's going to look better. And that's, and that's the and but with less bandwidth. So we're lowering the bandwidth requirements that are required that, that, that it takes to move that content, but increasing the um, CPU power or more processing power. And Apple's putting in dedicated chips for this. This is going to be really hard for those who don't support it um, because they're going to end up, I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of platforms starting to move to AV1 because it's free, but it does mean that older machines may have a hard time decoding it. Um, you know, so as you start to see 4K and everything else, it's going to, you know, so for companies like Apple, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you're hanging on to that eight-year-old computer, you may have to upgrade to be able to watch, you know, some of these things at the highest quality. So it's trading off. It, there was a lot of focus on making it, uh, in the past, there's been a lot of focus on making it easy for the for the device to be able to decode it. Now what we're looking at is it's really important to lower the bandwidth required and keep that quality at the same level or higher. And so it's cha that changing priority will affect consumers as we move forward. Um, but it will end up being something that will, I think, is going to be the future and, and where you're going to, you're going to, because so many companies have gotten into it, uh, you'll see, I think, probably a, a lot more uh, rollout in the next year. 
Next question. Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Alex, what make and model are those large LED panels in the 090 office that I saw on Wednesday's show? Alex? I think that those are um, the uh, those are the Nanlite uh, 100Bs. So those are the Nanlite, you know, the, the um, so I think that that's what those are. I, there's, we have 100s in there. We actually have some 200s, uh, which are massive lights. They're the only ones we could get during COVID. Imagine sending those to our poor uh, guests. They had these these things that were the size of a window. And they looked great, though. Like, I'm going to tell you, when, when the 200s turn on, they, it's a nice big uh, space. But I think that what you saw there were either 100s. We have a lot of 68s and a couple 100s, and I think that you probably saw those. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, <clears throat> Texas. What's the best strategy for upgrading a maxed-out iPhone 14 Pro Max to an iPhone 15 Pro Max? Carriers like Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T, Visible, Mint Mobile, or Apple via shipping or Apple Store? Uh, Nigel, take it on. So I think the answer is it depends where you live and what you're going to use it for. Um, so, as ever, it depends. I, I did want to spend just one second thinking back on how easy it is to upgrade from an iPhone 14 to 15. If you're one of those people who are addicted to the annual cycle, and I think I've upgraded every iPhone every year, the journey now is so fundamentally different from one to two or two to three, which really was, for me at least, an involvement with AT&T for three hours on the phone to make it work. I've already had my email from Apple. I have already uh, configured it. I just wait until seven o'clock my time tomorrow morning to press the button and then I'll be done. Um, uh, by the way, I'm on the Apple program because I used to be on the AT&T program, but they changed it every time. And I know at least if I'm on the Apple upgrade cycle, I'm going to get the consistent best response. Uh, John Preto. I'm on the I'm on the AT&T upgrade program, and, and it's interesting. Apple's quoting $650 trade-in, and it's got 10 asterisks. AT&T's got 15 asterisks up to $1,000, which I think is is wrong. But figure about $600 for trade-in, and then I just checked on Craigslist and Marketplace on Facebook. People are getting about seven to $800 if you sell it on the used market. So there's another choice. Chris Fenwick. I'm going to be the contrarian voice. It's okay not to buy every iPhone. I know that Alex is going to say it's his job, you know, backbreak. I get it. But it would be good for America if Alex went on MacBreak next week and said, I've decided to skip this one. You don't need every iPhone. It would be good. I think uh, the consumerism of I got to have, I got to have, I got to have hurts a lot of people who can't afford it. I'm not going to get a phone. I skip every other year. Don't upgrade. Well, every panel needs a heretic. And anyway, <laughs> we love these things. Alex. The funny thing is, is that if, if there's any phone that I was going to upgrade to, it would be this one because of the 3D opportunities and some of the some of the lens stuff. So for me, it's not even beyond it's my job. There are years that I buy it because it's my, I, I view it as my job on Mac break to have relatively new hardware. Uh, I did skip. Here's what happened was I skipped one year of, of the iPhone and I just felt like I was outside of the conversation for a year. And so, you know, like while we're talking, we're talking about some feature, we're talking about something else. And, it, and, it, from, and I didn't feel like. 
uh, I didn't feel like that made sense for the show. So that's that's why I upgrade them. But what I will say is the thing that I'm really excited about, of course, is the stereo, which I think I was the only one to predict what happened after WWDC. So I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, you're going to need to generate content for the headset. So, you know, what I'm... I and to be clear, it's not like I'm newly interested in stereo. I have I have stereo cameras back there. I have been buying stereo cameras for 15 years. I've been doing stereo work for um, longer than that. Uh, so I'm. It's kind of an obsession of mine. The only reason I have a hydrogen, I have a hydrogen right here somewhere, was because. Oh, here it is. So this was the original cell phone with the. Oh, I guess the the, the interocular. So if you look at this. This has um, two lenses on it. This, so this is this is the red hydrogen Android phone. So I went to Android just to have this the stereo pair, um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, it, it never went anywhere, but they did send me two of them um, anyway. But uh, uh, I so I've been. This is something I've been obsessed with for a long time. I'll be taking that phone out all the time and just shooting stereo, waiting for. Uh, the headsets to come out that I can deliver to. So I, I think that um, uh, I'll have hours and hours and hours of footage by the time the headset is uh, shipping. And so, so I think that for me, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, it's definitely my, this is definitely my, uh, my jam. So, so I, I don't care about the rest of the phone. I just wait for Apple to just tell me if it, did the camera get significantly better. And that's really my litmus. If it, do, if it doesn't get significantly better, then it's really just for the show. And some years, again, one year, I didn't do it. I am selling my phone back, which is the first for me. Usually I keep the phones and just keep passing them through the family. I will say that the 12 and the 13s are so good. My kids have 12s and my, my, my wife has a 13, are so good. There was no, I didn't feel like it was, I felt like it was better just, I asked my wife, like, do you want the 14? She's like, I don't need anything better than what I have. And so I'm, I'm trading it in um, for $650. <laughs> and mine's in mint condition because it spent its entire existence inside of a case. So, um, so it's, it's got a front, it should have no scratches, no dings, no nothing. So I should get my 650 for back. Mitch Hill. Uh, the folks at AT&T sent me a note pleading if I would send this six back, they would update upgrade it for nothing uh, to a 15. And at the urging of the entire panel, I just might take them. I just want that headphone jack. I think you need an intervention, Mitch. Uh, Alex, you had a follow-up? And, and I would recommend just buying it from Apple. Like, don't buy it. I, I bought... I've bought some of the phones from some of the other cell providers, and you just understand the the hell that everybody else lives inside of. Um, the, the upgrades, getting your Apple Care to work, getting you know the things to happen. It's just it's not worth it. Like I, I've definitely bought phones from AT and T and Verizon and T Mobile individually. The store experience is so bad, and the fact that you can buy it from Apple and um, I have it same as Nigel. I have it all set up. You know, in my in my thing, everything's already in there. All I got to do is jump in and hit go. And so, um, and and the the service is so much higher from Apple, and and the integration with the Apple Care and everything else. I would never buy an Apple product from anyone other than Apple at this point. Well, my problem with doing that is that AT and T was the only other um, Apple connected choice there. And I got out of AT&T when we moved two years ago uh, because they weren't very good in our area for their cell phone coverage. And it was so difficult to untangle from the AT&T system that I thought, boy, if I never have to go back into it, uh, that's just me. So I'm not saying that other people don't have fabulous uh, experiences with them. But as a Spectrum user here, it's a little more complicated than just pushing the button. And I do wish they had more links into that Apple automated system, which I love as well, uh, for more carriers. Courtney, your thoughts? 
Yeah, a lot of the carriers, although it is, I think, against, they finally have legislation against it, but I do think the carriers still lock you in and lock that particular phone. If they provide you with a free phone uh, with a certain carrier, you know, for a new phone, if you sign up for two years, uh, that phone is locked to that carrier. You have to call and get it unlocked if you want to move to another carrier, and that is really difficult. Uh, They put so much friction in that possible to keep you in their their bailiwick that it's a nightmare. They comply with the law, but you got to find the right person at the AT&T store, and then you got to escalate it up to somebody, uh, you know, and and I have to admit, I haven't, I've only, I paid for all my phones since the the, the iPhone came out. So Spectrum, the Spectrum deal is what I have. It's if you if you're not a big consumer of bandwidth of uh, data, they have a, a an unlimited thing for Spectrum. If you have your Spectrum as your carrier for uh, data at home for like fourteen dollars a month flat, no ups, no extras, no taxes, no magic hidden fees per gigabyte. Yeah, so there are a lot of things that fit into everybody's individual thing, but thank you for the question, Paul. It was a good discussion. Let's go to next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, asking, I'm thinking about purchasing a used Blackmagic Studio 4K camera, micro four-thirds, because I have lenses. Would a Panasonic or Sigma Prime lens with autofocus be supported for controlling focus? Jesse Kester is going to start us off. Jesse? is technically not lying when they say that they have autofocus controls on their pocket cinema cameras. Uh, You cannot count on it for anything, so assume that if you want to be doing follow focus or autofocus, you're going to need like a motor controlled follow focus that you you can handle remotely. It's okay to experiment in a home studio if you're doing a like a preset show and you want to you want to follow focus something on your desk, but uh, in the field, functionally useless. Roscoe Jones. Uh, yeah, it's kind of what Jesse said there. It's it's an autofocus only. You can click in the ATEM software and tell it to autofocus. But you can also, Olympus has a uh, F3.5, uh, uh, 12 to 50 millimeter that you can actually do the zoom through the ATEM software control also. So if you, if it, the 3.5 may be an issue unless you have some really good lighting. It is a Vario, so it goes from 3.5 to 6 point something and you know once you actually zoom in or zoom out with it so the lighting the amount of light passing through the lens changes as you zoom in and zoom out but there but they do there are other things out there too that you can automatically do Roscoe, you've got the coolest background we've seen. You've got moving lights and everything. Where are you? It's good to see you again. Uh, little Trade Show has good bandwidth, so I came across the river. In I'm in Louisville, and uh, it's a little trade show behind me. It has Black Magic, has B&H, has uh, Allen and Heath. It has a whole bunch of LEDs. It's for churches. It's a worship uh, a audiovisual experiment, experiment. And this is the first time they've actually had the expo floor. So everyone's it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Cool, Sean. That's great to see you back on the panel again. Let's uh, go to Alex. Alex. Yeah, Panasonic has a series of powered zoom lenses. You're, you're looking for the powered zoom lenses um, that, that are there. Um, I have a couple of them. And they're not the highest quality lenses. You know, they're not the they're not going to be something that, to, to, but they are. I've used them for the overhead shots that go down, um, you know, so that I can put them up and zoom in on a product or zoom back out. Uh, those are the kind of things I use it for. Um, the, uh, I would... Um, uh, not buy a camera until later today. <laughs> so so it's, there's an announcement. There's a series of announcements happening at IBC, I believe, or, or at the same time as IBC, I think at 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, so I probably wouldn't buy any Blackmagic cameras until I saw that that announcement. There you go. Let's go to the next question. 
Rian Smith from Trinidad West Indies asked, hey, check this out. It connects via 2 or 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi, and out the other side gives uh, power over Ethernet and IP control. Plus, it sends the IP video back to your OBS, etc. Okay, Courtney, did you see this product, and what does it look like? Uh, it looks like something like this uh, for about 275 bucks. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious as to it's really its best application. I know what it's supposed to do is it gives you a wireless link to a PTZ camera for something that that uses uh, PoE. The problem is it has to be powered, and uh, since it's wireless. It's kind of hard to send power over wireless. And one of the big problems with a, uh, getting a remote PTZ camera is getting power to it. And that's what they solve usually with PoE. So you can only run one Ethernet cable and it carries the power with it to the camera. But if you're using this to link to the camera, you still got to find a place to plug it in for AC power for this receiver. So I'm not sure if it's a solution that creates a new problem or not. But other than that, it looks pretty interesting and it's certainly uh, pretty cheap if you have power on the other end uh, to transmit your video over a distance that you don't want to run cable to or can't run cable to. So it's using both a wall wart for power to the unit and power over ethernet for the connection? I think the unit is powered over a wall wart uh, the receiver is, uh, you see it has a little power plug there on it, and then it has PoE output that that would plug into your camera. So that receiver, and you'd have a transmitter on the other end, that receiver would uh, then use the PoE video input into your PTZ camera and be able to control it. It sends controls and video uh, <clears throat> over the wireless uh, link, either 2.4 gigahertz or 5 gigahertz link back to the uh, uh, receiver and on the receiver end, then you get it back out. It has a similar thing on the other end, I think. Yeah, cool. Well, Rian, if you get one or know somebody who does, ping back into the show and let us know how things function. We'd love to hear. Let's get to the next question. Next one in from Georgie Chonfari Bortnik in Swissvale, New Hebrides. The question is for Ambisonics, why not use a dodec for the mic? I'll, Alex. I believe this is a higher order ambisonic mic. Um, it's really hard to find on the internet, but I, as I remember it, it was it had a, a more it had more mics um, and it was more expensive. <laughs> so, so I think that I, I believe that that's a and Courtney might be able to correct me, but I believe that there's a I, I, I had a hard time drilling down into it on the internet. But as I remember it, it was a second or third order. Um, uh, Ambisonic. The reason that we're using the ambisonic mics that we have are the, because those are the ones that I have. You know, like that's let's be clear. Like I, I don't the ambisonic mics because they're multiple mics get more expensive really fast. So um, uh, I, I I have one that I've had for many years to do testing, and then I'm being lent a octa that I'm that I'm looking at. So uh, those are the, the those are the ones so that's first and second order. So dodec for dodecahedron. So it's got twelve ca uh, microphones in it. That sounds interesting, Courtney. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Bill. Thanks. Yeah, oh, I think it does have 12. I haven't been able to find it because uh, Google keeps correcting my search to say, you know, did you mean uh, Rode microphone? No, Dodec. <laughs> so I haven't found it yet. But uh, I, it's, it, it intimates that it would have 12, a 12 mic array arranged in a dodecahedron with uh, several surfaces, 12 surfaces. 
I'm, I'm just thinking about how what what direction they point them. Is it a spherical kind of thing? Well, too when, many the, way, the way that the ambisonic you know goes is, is you're building a sphere with those mics. So you start with four, then you go to eight, then you go to sixteen, then thirty two. Typically, um, so Makes but sense. they're all they're all they're all pointed in ways that will basically build a sphere of a, you know field. Like we, we talked in detail about that yesterday, but but that but that's um, as you add more, of course, you have much more resolution. So. Interesting. Uh, let's go to the next question. Bram Cardwell of Belfast, Northern Ireland. When cutting video in Resolve Studio, it always selects the top-level track, whether on, off, or disabled, rather than the video track, which is then to be selected by mouse. Is there a way around this other than just adding a higher track later? Jesse. I think I understand this question, and if I do, please pardon the fact that all my media is offline. Uh, try going up to Timeline and deselect Selection Follows Playhead. See if that helps you out. Well, there you go. Hopefully that's a direct fix for this. It would be great if we can do it that simply. We always want to try to help you with every problem we can, and maybe this was one of those golden moments where we were able to solve it. That'd be great. Let's get to the next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, right here on our panel. Has anyone used an NDI multi-viewer like Tractus? What are the pros and cons of using NDI for multiple feeds? And Alex. Uh, Elias, who is the creator of Tractus, has actually been on our panel a couple times. In fact, he was on, uh, and I think it came up a couple times um, during the NDI kind of summit that we, mini summit that we did a couple of Fridays ago. So um, uh, I think that it's a, it's, it's actually pretty, uh, Tractus looks like one of the best to see all of these NDI feeds at one time. Roscoe, you had a comment? Yeah, I, I'm just right on the cusp of getting into NDI because it just has so much functionality and it seems that the the products are really mature now. So I just, I'm just thinking for the multiple feed, if there's any, you know, synchronization issues or anything like that, but you know, I think it's, uh, I, mean, I think that ready to bite. I would, I would, I would, uh, just look at, um, for, for stuff that I work on, it's just, it's just looking at, uh, you should, you, if you're doing stereo standard dynamic range, it's probably fine. Um, it is, I do think that there, a lot of us talked about the Netgear AV, uh, switches that, you know, we really make it a lot easier. Otherwise you really have to dig into the IP stuff to make sure it doesn't kind of, you know, what, what we've had trouble with in the past is taking over some of the network, but, um, uh, the um, O9O uses a lot of NDI. So half the company uses NDI and half the company uses copper. <laughs> so I, I'm the half that uses copper. So, um, but but the, um, and I have seen, you know, there's some idiosyncrasies that we see in NDI that we, you know, just some stability issues that we see in NDI that we don't see in in um, in in copper, but there's also, copper is a much heavier, like it's just a lot more work to move everything around. Uh, I think that, you know, I'm still looking at, I'm still tracking what, Black Magic is doing with 2110 because 2110 has had a problem where it just there hasn't been enough tools to get in and out of all the things that don't have 2110 yet, but it's starting to kind of build up. It's a much harder networking problem. 2110 is a much harder networking problem than than NDI. So uh, you know I'm I'm taking that into account, um, but I'm also watching what Black Magic's doing today. Um, I I think that I will be surprised. Maybe it'll happen, but I'll be surprised if any camera that Black Magic releases now will have uh, will not have uh, an Ethernet port, you know, on it. So they're they're biting down on on twenty one ten. So we'll we'll see how that how that looks. 
And in case you didn't notice it, the little QR code popped up. I also wanted to remind you, it's not just the QR code. If you don't have anything uh, that reads a QR code in your computer, you can still just go directly to officehours.com, that little address at the top of the QR code, and that will take you into the same Mukana, uh, the, the same adjacent Mukana adjacent system to put your questions in for the show. So it's a really quick way to get your ideas and your thoughts in. And as always, please take a little bit of time when you put your question in, uh, look through the other questions there and vote on them. The questions that get the most votes are the ones we get to the most rapidly and spend the most time with. So it's important your voting always counts there. And I think John Preto had a little comment on the last thing before we move on, John. So on an, so on an NDI multi-viewer, if, if you have a 1080p feed, is it about 100 meg? So you'd saturate out a one gig card at 10 feeds. Is that correct, Alex? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's the whole thing is that, and if you have HX, obviously you can put a lot more feeds on it, but you have to start thinking, I wouldn't use NDI on less than a 10 gig switch. You know, like it's, I think you need, you need to be thinking about 10 gig to do, to do anything useful. Got a lot of overhead bandwidth. Our next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, we talk about high quality video content, but how do you manage healthy chat moderation for streams with a chat component? Do you recruit moderators from the viewer base? Jesse, start us out. For community-driven streams, we can recruit from the the use uh, the viewer base. Uh, for corporate streams, that is a paid position and a very, very, very important one. Uh, Courtney, yes, you do have to uh, get moderators, but to, and and paid ones are probably good. But you have to be very careful with this because uh, you have to establish rules for the chat and make sure that everyone understands what the rules are. And the moderators have to explain to people that they're going to kick off why they were kicked off. Otherwise, they get very mad and uh, will badmouth you on the Internet. So you got to be careful about your moderation. You can't be too strict or find somebody who's a moderator that likes to take out revenge on people because he doesn't like what they're saying, etc. You have to keep them basically rule-based. But it's a, it's a very uh, a delicate path to walk, and you don't want to alienate any of your users uh, by being too strict in your moderation. Alex? Yeah, I, I, I think that I agree with Courtney that you have to be very clear what the rules are, um, but you should act decisively. <laughs> like so, so the thing is, is that when in doubt, kick them out, you know, so, so the, um, you know, when you're, when someone's like, like the, um, and the reason for that is, is that it really takes a lot of energy out of the, out of the space, you know, and so you have to be very, you know, we, I, when we do it for clients, we tend to be pretty aggressive um, because what we're looking for is, is having a, a, a healthy chat. And most of the time, it depends on whether you're doing this over and over and over again. So if you're building up a community, then you have to be, you have to be a little bit lighter touch. If you're doing a one-off um, and someone starts to, to mouth off in the chat, we just dump them because it doesn't, they don't matter to us because this is, we're only going to be here once. <laughs> you know, so, so the, um, so, uh, and, and, and the folks that cause the most trouble in those situations tend to have low followings. So, so it, it, you know, so I have to, you know, just to be cut and dry about it. I do a lot of events like this. Um, now, what we when we do one-offs, we generally don't have chat at all. So um, the reason people have chat or or discussion is because they don't have a question system. <laughs> so most of what we do is a question system, like what you see when you use the QR code here, which means that it gives us a, it's not a visible uh, interaction. Um, the chat isn't. Again, the chat is great when you're building up community and you're going to have people interacting with them, and, and oftentimes you have a softer touch there. Um, but the um, 
when you're only going to do it once, the reason you're generally using chat is to acquire comments and questions for the show. And so there's not really the chat itself oftentimes is not as beneficial, um, you know, in that in that sense. So it depends on whether you're doing this over and over and over again or you're doing a, a one off. But the one off, you're better off with a closed question system. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking two new iCloud plans launch on September 18th. Somewhat remarkably, the in-person crowd of more than 300 Apple acolytes and members of the global press were more enthused by the new iCloud tiers than they were by the iPhone's new USB-C port. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can understand that a little bit. iCloud is kind of special, but I'm going to let Alex dive into it first, Alex. Yeah, I mean, everyone knew the USB-C was coming. <laughs> you know, and so I think that there wasn't, that we were like, okay, great. We all knew that that was going to happen. So uh, I don't think that anyone was that, that interested. I think that there are a lot of people that are pretty interested in the phone. But yeah, the USB-C port probably wasn't that exciting. Uh, a lot of us have been na- hitting the, the top of our, our iCloud for, many, for a long time. Uh, you know, I think many of us wish that they would just keep on ratcheting up what's available there so we don't have to keep thinking about it. But uh, so that, I can see why they'd be excited. You know, and one of Apple's strategy, I think, is they they spend a lot of engineering time and a lot of human interface time trying to lower friction, which is just how to make things easy and not have any load on the user to figure out how to use it and then come back to reminding yourself how to use it. And the iCloud system is so heavily integrated into Apple's entire operation, all of the software, all of the hardware, that they make it super easy. Once you have an iCloud account, things happen automatically in terms of backups and things like that, that just means that you don't have to think about it anymore. So if you're in that ecosystem and you have a lot of devices in that ecosystem, it really adds a ton of value if you have an iCloud account and have it robust enough to do the backing up and the the rest of the communication stuff that you want to do. I just find it, 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 I I love the fact that they've put that much time and effort into making it as seamless as possible. I'm sure there are other services that do as good a job and maybe things that are better in niche areas. And so you may want to investigate everything. But if you're in the Apple ecosystem as heavily as I am and many other people are, it's just kind of a no-brainer turnkey. Boy, I'm glad I have access to more because that means as my information ecosystem builds, I'll probably never have to leave it, which is really cool. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Can you suggest sound visualization software to model behavior inside a room? Alex, start us off. You can. Uh, you, you listed it here. You just didn't want it for the $7,000 euro price, uh, but it is $7,000. There's not a lot of good ones that are going to be much less. So um, that's the challenge is that visualization is a very specialized um vertical and it doesn't make sense for them to sell it for any less because they just don't have that many customers so it it doesn't but it's a really some of that software is it's really nifty let's go to courtney gooden yeah what you're talking about is acoustical simulation i was going to suggest uh sonic visualizer but then i realized oh we want to see what a room is going to react like and alex is right uh it is very expensive software to it basically kind of does ray tracing for sound in a room but you have to remember you have to enter all the reflectivity uh coefficients of all the surfaces in that room so it knows how to trace the sound's path and whether that's a reflective surface, absorptive surface. And I did find a website out there on engineering your sound with the best acoustic simulation software. And it says number one here is Comsol, which I don't know if it's uh, where it stands in the one that you listed. Uh, next is 
ANSYS. So you might look up this and then Siemens has some too for acoustic simulation where it, it visually depicts the, uh, the acoustics of a room based on the reflective surfaces and the layout and distances between the room. And of course, your, uh, uh, your models that you put in there of the room have to be very accurate uh, to get the timing right and to know when things are going to cancel and beat and things like that. So uh, it's a very expensive and very uh, a detailed uh, thing to try and chart a room. It's not quite as easy as just, you know, giving it a plan of the room and hope hope that it's going to work. I wonder if these things just uh, generate a frequency sweep. And if you took an Earthworks or a similar uh, completely flat microphone and put it in the room, if it would figure out all the room's behaviors, kind of like uh, mapping a room with LIDAR. Kind of like audiogrammetry, huh? Yeah, audiogrammetry. That's exactly kind of what just I was thinking of. new word. Yeah, very nice, Courtney. Thank you. All right, just thoughts off the top. Let's go to the next question. John Preto from Las Vegas, Nevada, and here in our panel, let's discuss Apple's strategy on putting a USB 2 on the baseline iPhone and a USB 3.x on the Pro, but not including a 3.x cable. What? Nigel, <laughs> take it on. So there's, there's the obvious answer to John's question, which is they just did it to annoy you, John. But there's the less obvious question, which is the base uh, phone has the N-1 chip in it, which does not have USB 3 support in it. And the new phone has the A17, is whatever the latest number is, and that does on board have a USB 3.x um, driver uh, in the in the hardwired into the into the chip. So that's the the obvious answer to the to the first part. Um, the second part is. The cable choice, I mean, I think Alex uh, has been making this point forever. And um, this is just going to cause confusion. And But I think most people who really want, you know, the fast 10 meg ripoff from the phone because they're putting it onto a drive of some sort are going to work out which cable they use and nobody else cares. But I, I was disappointed that Apple didn't use this moment to redefine, rename, restructure, make, and make the cable somehow different to make a point. I, I guess you could say they did this to cause universal confusion, but I don't think that would have been a smart marketing strategy. Nigel, I heard you say conspiracy, and that little ASMR response went up my spine, so I'm sticking with that answer. Uh, John Preto. You said 10 meg. You meant, you meant 10 gig. But but why ah, ten? Yeah. Why stop at 10 gig when, when we've got 80 gig USB version 4? So it, at least USB 4 at 40 gig. I, and then not including the cable in the box? Come on. Uh, Chris Fenwick. I think this <clears throat> I think this is an interesting um snapshot of consumer desires that is fairly universal and we've seen many times. At at one end of the scale you have the true, you know, just amateur consumer. Like I just need to call my mom, you know? And then at the other end you have, you know, your Alex Lindsay's that's gonna buy you know, 10 iPhone 15s and mount them on a basketball so you can shoot spherical video, you know, blah, blah, whatever. I mean, there, there's that insane end of the scale. That person over here at the highest end, they don't care about the cost. They don't care about the the stuff. They just want the very, very best. And then the, the person that just wants to be able to text their mom, they don't care about the speed. The vast majority of people are, are never going to plug this thing into anything, John. 
They're just not. They're going to lay it down on their magnetic charger and be done with it. They're going to they're going to take a picture. It's going to magically be in their iCloud. They're not going to wire this up to anything. They don't care about all that high-end stuff or the ProRes, whatever, that, you know, the, that, that really needs the super fast cable. And in the middle is where it gets interesting. Because in the middle of this spectrum is the people that want all the cool features, but they don't want to pay for it. And they don't understand why the entry level just isn't better. And the, the answer is... Put on your big boy pants, get out your credit card, and buy the pro model. That's and and I think that happens a lot. We saw it with the with the with the Mac Minis. Well, I don't understand why they don't just have this. They do. It's called an Ultra. Go buy one. Well, I don't want to pay that. Okay, so you're in that middle. You you don't want to pay for the pro, but you want all those pro features. And I I see this kind of behavior a lot, and I just I I think it's interesting. I think Chris is on to something here. And I say that in part because I spent a lot of time videotaping and participating in efficient price meetings uh, in the in one of my large retail clients. And when they try to figure out where to price things, the, 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 the discussions are endless about exactly the kinds of issues Chris is talking about here. And so none of this uh, isn't. I do think Gone there's through room. with a fine tooth comb. Sorry, Bill. Uh, no, sorry. John, I do think that there's room for an iPhone Ultra. And let's oh. put Thunderbolt 5 on it, just announced yesterday. Let's, you know, have it be, a, a, you know, a, a 10 terabyte phone. Whatever. I don't know. 10 terabytes is data storage. And, and let's have it cost $3,000. You know, cost as much as a Mac that you put in your pocket. I'm wondering um, though if shoehorning those features into something at working at the three nanometer level in I mean whatever I, I, I don't know yeah. about the exact yeah. no, numbers but 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 yeah I mean you know they got this name that they're using in the Mac world Ultra well what would an Ultra phone remember when they came out with the Pro phone the the Pro iPhone Pro and it was like but it still doesn't do this well, I was like okay yeah that's right but I think that an iPhone Ultra that's soup it's going to be stupid expensive. And it could and it could have you know Thunderbolt five or whatever, but it would allow you to get your stereoscopic, you know, ProRes or what is this AV one? That one snuck up on me. I didn't know what that question was about earlier. You may get your wish though, because they have obviously in the watch level done exactly that. Here's the right. crazy expensive. If you can't afford it, don't even look at it. Watch and here's everything else. John Preto, your thoughts about this stuff? Chris, you're missing my point completely. Nigel nailed the reason why they have USB 2 in the base iPhone because the new chip i7 the i17 chip has the i17 whatever it's called the 17 version of the a17 a17 has has 3.0 built in it having 3.0 in the chip in the phone already and not including the cable to perform 3.0 is ridiculous and the cable's like $70 no okay then I'd go back to what we said earlier, the people Nigel said earlier, the people that really need it, they have that cable anyway. And why would they give away a bunch of cables that most people aren't ever going to use? Don't put it in there. Don't don't put any cable in the box. Make it fifteen dollars less expensive. 
I will say you know, I have the people a clear who need a cable will find the right cable. Somewhere that has about 75 white cables through my history with Apple, none of which have any utility anymore. They've come and gone. So, and Nigel, you're, you get to close off because you started off. Uh, uh, yes, my, my only closing uh, thought is there's probably also a supply issue here that with within a new processor, you get a certain allocation of chips that will, that will pass. They're probably not far enough through the manufacturing to get the volume they want. So that's one of the reasons why you limit things to different machines. The, the only other point is I am so grateful they did not announce a $3,000 Ultra phone yesterday. So for one, my wife thanks you, I thank you. <laughs> uh, I will just say this. Uh, in my early training in the retail world, I was working for a guy who had a couple of stereo shops. And when the day he told me that the difference between Tier 1 Tier 2 and Tier 3 was exclusively how many holes they drilled in the faceplate to enable the stuff because they only made one chassis. <laughs> and everything else was to make price points for different customer types. Uh, I was going to cut that off, but Chris, go ahead. Finish up. Nigel, check the spreadsheet for the third rail. I added a new episode. Bye. All right. Let's go to the next question. Moving on, Jesse Kester from Glendale asking, the 5X Zoom on the new iPhone was quite an interesting design. Are there other consumer-grade cameras, phones, or otherwise with a lens system like that? Courtney, I believe there is, but Courtney, can you, do you know for sure? I think the uh, Samsung S23 Ultra has a, a 5X Zoom, which is a periscope-type uh, lens. It uses... It basically bends the light path horizontally so it doesn't have to stick the lens out any further to get distance between the chip and the lens. Uh, but they, they warn you that usually that 5X is uh, is a step up and it uses a different sensor or, or a different light path for lower than 5X. So 3X and 2X will be digital zooms till you get to 5X, then it switches to optical zoom and goes on from there. And they rate, I found several places that rate cameras of course they probably haven't rated the new iphone yet because it wasn't out yet at the time this article was written but this at the time the samsung uh, s23 ultra was the highest rated and it did have a uh, periscope type 5x optical zoom roscoe jones yeah, it now has a 3x and a 10x telephoto. Uh, the Samsung 23, and uh, but it has a hundred. I mean, what your has a what 100 or 200 megapixel sensor. So digital zooming is not that bad when you have that huge yeah. of a sensor to work it's with. Two 200 megapixels in that camera. Take 200. Yeah. Yeah, I also found it interesting that it's not on the regular Pro, only on the Pro Max, and I think that's just physical size limitation. I think they were openly able to put that prism system into the bigger body. Uh, but it, I looked at the diagram yesterday, uh, and it's really interesting that it's got like five uh, a five-light-path-bounce prism in it, and they, yet it's no thicker than the regular ones. That was a pretty smart piece of engineering, at least it looked like it to my untrained eye. Let's go to the next question. Lois Richter in Davis, California asked, what is high pass and what is it used for? Uh, let's start Mitchell Hill. Uh, there are two that I'm aware of. Uh, one, the most common is a high pass filter and an audio recording. It 
does as the name implies, it passes the high frequency and reduces the low frequencies uh, depending on a curve or a slope that you apply to it. And the other one is in video editing or in like Photoshop, uh, if you apply a high pass to a, um, a high pass filter, sort of a specialty filter that sharpens the image and does some weird stuff with the colors. It makes it very psychedelic. So if you like that, you've got two versions. Jesse? I'm assuming you're talking audio, and if it's audio, the best way for me to frame this is in relation to three other types of filters. High pass, low pass, high cut, low cut. Pass allows the sound to go through. Cut cuts the sound out. High pass allows uh, high frequency to go through. Low pass allows low pass, or low frequencies. High cut trims your high frequencies. Uh, low cut trims your low frequencies. That's clear and concise. Courtney, thoughts? Yes, very clear. I was just going to say it's a medical marijuana card is a high pass. <laughs> no, uh, that is no, entirely. It, it is. It is what they said. Before. Clean show. Yeah, high pass is usually used to uh, attenuate low frequencies. Like if you're using a, a handheld boom on a microphone or wind noise that is subaudible, uh, it'll filter out that stuff. Uh, and it usually has a knee that you set the knee frequency at and it'll have a declining attenuation for any, any uh, sound below that frequency and down from that frequency. And I think, I'm, I'm not an engineer at all, but I think that the high-pass video filter is doing the same thing. I think it's it's rolling off high, high-frequency stuff so that things like mosquito noise and little uh, problems with the high-frequency information, even in the video signal, get uh, limited some way. So... Um, it may be getting out stuff at the bottom end. That's what a high-pass filter usually does. It allows everything above the certain level to go through. But in video, I think it's the same basic idea. I might be wrong about that. Let's go to the next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Tromso, Norway, asking, we're primarily using an encoder and peplink as transport and live view as backup for our live IBC coverage. Can we discuss the different peplink solutions and how they change the way we use them compared to the combined encoder and transport in live view? Um, we can discuss that, but nobody has raised a hand, so we're, that's not going to be much of a discussion, and this is not an area that I'm particularly strong in. Um, I don't use a live view. Unfortunately, uh, Alex would probably have a really good answer for this, but he's with our guest for the second hour, kind of getting uh, set up for the show. So you have two strategies. Well, first of all, Roscoe's raised a hand. So, Roscoe, you want to All wanna I can do is... I, I'm the same, but I've done the trade shows, but I watching Noah and watching, you know, just work with these things. Uh, the two technologies that Peplink markets, and again, I'm, I'm on the marketing level, is WAN smoothing, wide area network smoothing, and forward error correction. So I don't know even if the interface, if you get to choose one or the other, or maybe John can speak to what WAN wide area network smoothing is. I, I'm not aware. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where you would be well served to, to, Alex is almost always here, and I know he does, he's been doing so much work with Live View and looking deeply into it. He's also very familiar with the PepLink models. So uh, this is just an anomaly of time. You happen to have this question come up at a time when Alex isn't here. He could probably handle this beautifully. So we're going to have to, unfortunately, move to the next question. Robert Sababody from Poland asks, I use a double WAN router with two separate ISP connections. One is my main provider and the other is the backup. Due to hysteria uh, characteristics required in the router, how does one reduce the time to switch to backup when the main ISP fails? 
I know there are some failover uh, specific scenarios that I have heard people talk about that does it semi-automatically at the at the um, connection point. John Preto, thoughts? That's it's hysteresis. Just oh yeah, I was going to. So several. Gonna, of, I'm, just, I'm hysterical. Several routers. Several routers have have this built in. Um, in fact, the the Dream Machine Pro has this built in, so they have dual WAN support. Automatically switches over. Okay, so uh, maybe look at those models of the WAN routers. Courtney, you had another thought? Well, the big problem is it has to have hysteresis. Otherwise, it would jitter back and forth between your two suppliers, and there would be packet loss and stuff. So uh, they they build in a time delay. When it loses connection to one, it, it waits for a second and buffers and um, waits for it to come back a certain period of time, and you can usually set that hysteresis delay. And then if it still doesn't respond, uh, maybe it sends pings out, it then switches to the backup. Uh, but that's going to happen with this. There's always going to be some slight delay where it's buffering in between those two, but it shouldn't lose packets in the meantime when it switches. For those of us who do not know, can you uh, give us a two-cent real simplified version of what hysteresis means? Uh, it's a time delay and offset, so going in isn't the same time as coming out. Uh, that's kind of hysteresis uh, effect. Uh, it, it's an it's a uh, non-symmetrical timing of switching on and switching off. Oh yeah, I just I looked it up really quickly because I wasn't I'd seen the term but I wasn't familiar with it and it says something about an instance where the magnetic induction lags behind the magnetizing force. So an offset in synchronous sync or something of some kind. Cool. Uh, thank you. I helped me learn a little more. Next question. Eric Price from Kansas City, Missouri. Will Noise Assist help with a multi-mic podcast recording given that it can only be applied to one mix pre-channel? For example, it can be applied to a mix channel or just a single input channel. Is it worth it? Nigel. I don't believe that on the mix pre-series you can run Noise Assist across multiple channels. I believe you can only run it, at least I've only worked out how to run it across one, and I had a quick, I had a three. I looked at the six and the ten quickly, and I couldn't see, a, a, you know, multiple Noise Assist. I'll tell you what I do do, though, which is a bit bizarre, is uh, my mic is connected to my mix pre. My mix pre is connected to Dante via a Clark Technic device, although you can, I think, get larger ones that have a Dante connection in it. That goes to a sound mixer, my X32, so I can mix my mic post-noise assist into it. It's probably going audio to analog to digital too many times, so it's not great, but it works. So it makes me wonder whether you could actually put the mix uh, pre uh, with noise assist on one of the channels of the X32, one of the outputs, and route through it. But I think you're doing it overly complicated at that point, and probably uh, if if this is the right thing to do, then you'd need multiple devices probably with separate noise assists on them. Mitchell. Um, I don't have a mix pre, but I would assume, I'm going to use a dangerous word here, uh, that you could place that um, uh, um, noise assist plug-in to a pre-mix output. So if you combine all of the uh, the microphones into an output, that particular output may be uh, a, a able to accept the uh, noise assist plug-in, uh, but I am confirming that there is only one noise assist and only one channel on the Mix Pre series until you jump up to like the 7 or the 8 series, in which case you can uh, add it to as many as you like. And Chris Fenwick. You're right, Mitchell. It's a big assumption to, to make. However, you're right. You actually can do that. So what 
what mixed what sound devices actually recommends in certain certain circumstances is that you take all your mics, uh, you send them to your left right. You center pan them all, so they're both going to appear on both the left and the right. You can take the noise assist software and you can assign it to any one of those microphones that's coming in. Or you can assign it to one of the left or the rights. So you could get a noise assisted mix down of your mics on the left channel, but an unnoise assisted mix down of your microphones on the right channel. And you can record those at the same time. Uh, you, you could do that. You're limiting yourself to mono, but it, it does work. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael is here asking, if Blackmagic Design is doubling down on 2110, what would be a cost-effective switch? Uh, John Preto's going to help us out, John. They won't be cost-effective. <laughs> They're going to be very expensive. So the infrastructure, we got a tour of one of the NFL trucks in 2110. The 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 routing and switching fabric in that truck was at least double, triple, quadruple the price of the audio video gear. It's super expensive uh, because you're talking about you're talking about one point two or gigabits per second per stream of uncompressed or larger, and so it's it's going to be super expensive on the switching fabric for twenty one ten. Chris Fenwick. I'm going to assume, Douglas, that based on the language of your question, you are referring to hearing John talk earlier this morning, maybe even pre-show, sort of speculating. I think Black Magic is going to double down. That's John's opinion. We don't know that as a fact yet. That was just John saying silly stuff. So let's, let's be clear about that. We don't know that Black Magic is doubling down on 2110. And I only say that, Douglas, because that's the exact verbiage that John was using. All right, fair enough. Let's go to our next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, will After Hours be holding a watch party for the Black Magic Design product update that's happening later today? Not that I know of. After Hours, there's a lot of busy stuff going on. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go into After Hours, hang out, and say, hey, who wants to talk about it? But the second hour experience kind of formalized thing, I don't think so. Uh, I just was checking into the announcements I'll be making at the end of the show as we get near the top of the hour. And don't forget that we have things already scheduled that will happen Thursday reasonably close after the show. Uh, For example, the Isadora Lab uh, takes place at 10 a.m. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But um, after hours is open all the time. And questions that are, or discussions people want to have, I think you just show up there, uh, raise your hand and say, hey, does everybody, uh, is everybody watching this and can we get it going? Uh, again, I don't think it's formal. I don't think a major announcement will go out uh, re- regarding it. But you are certainly always welcome to use after hours for that kind of group discussion should you choose to. Roscoe, you had a thought? Sure. I, I may run down with an iPhone camera and see what I can do in after hours just at the Black Magic booth right down here once the announcement comes out. I'll talk oh, that'd to be maybe someone awesome. there. Okay. We'll maybe they'll maybe know something. And the show that you're at is going on now, so you're not time constrained. Uh, the The announcement takes place, is it 11? What what time? Does anybody know what time? 10, 10 o'clock. T- 10, 10, 10 o'clock. 10 Pacific. Okay, 10 Pacific. So Pacific Standard Time. I think that's what we're on now, not Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, so 
do your ask Siri or whomever to figure out what time that is for you locally. And if you want to go into after hours and look for Roscoe's face, maybe you can get eyed onto the show floor and maybe he'll be able to, to ask questions of people who can't answer. <laughs> who knows? <And> probably, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, most of the time when Black Magic, when Grant does these kind of things, uh, they are, everything's embargoed up until this moment. And at that moment, we can talk about them. And beforehand, we can't talk about them. I don't know how far down that rest of the information that people would want to know from behind the scenes gets let out. But uh, take a shot. And that's one of the things After Hours is good for. Let's go to the next question. Chester Sweeney from Las Vegas, Nevada. If black is the absence of color and white is all the colors, why is it when I add all my paint colors together in the paint tray, they make black? Oh, let's talk about additive versus subtractive. Uh, Jesse Kester. Uh, light generation is additive. Light reflection is subtractive. Think about it as amplification and attenuation. When you turn on a, a light switch, you are amplifying the light in the room. When the light is bounced off a wall, it attenuates slightly. When you're mixing paints, the blue paint reflects blue and it doesn't reflect the others. The red paint reflects red and it doesn't uh, reflect the other frequencies. So when you combine those paints, you aren't adding light generation, you're subtracting the absent frequencies and the more you subtract the darker the reflections will become nice explanation john preto thoughts right on the money additive versus subtractive there's a great channel on instagram it's called art.pete.repeat he's a phd in color science he's got amazing videos on instagram nigel i refer the right honorable gentleman to the answer that was given before <laughs> chris fenwick yeah, this is a great example of accurate but incomplete. So, Chester, your statement was accurate but incomplete. Um, and then rewind, listen to Jesse again. Roscoe Jones. Over my right shoulder, you will see LED lights. This guy, basically what he does, he goes in and he replaces everyone's incandescent lights with LEDs. The color to get to white is lime. So it's red, green, blue, lime, and then the, the one light he has in there has a new proprietary LED that does deep red. So it's, it's interesting. It changes this whole additive and subtractive. When you get into these LED instruments, there's a lot of other things that go into making different colored light. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this This is it's a very good question because at first I didn't understand that. And it used to drive me particularly crazy when art directors would say, we need to match this Pantone swatch and pantone is a printer's thing and that's working in the subtractive realm and they're saying we have to match that on a video stream which is additive we're firing guns at the phosphors on the screen and it's very hard to get precise matches when you're working in two entirely different processes so uh, i chester again thank you for asking the question i think it's good for everybody to revisit these things once in a while let's go to our next question Next question coming in from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge. Please comment on an app similar to Niantic Wafer for Apple products using stereo video, maybe using Gaussian splatting uh, anchored to specific locations, for example, survey markers for scientific examination of historical sites accessible by Vision Pro. And I didn't listen to any of that. I'm sorry. I had a message that was coming in that was important. Uh, apps similar to Niantic, Wayfair, the Apple Projects Union Stereo Video. I, and I have no clue as to an answer to this. And I'm sorry, I didn't even have time in the middle of the, S, the rest of the stuff I was doing to dive into this. So I'm going to whiff on this. And we, uh, Roscoe, do you have a 10-second yeah, a thing? We're getting yeah, close they, to time yeah. here. 
basically you can go somewhere in the world and you can map it for other people. So basically this is kind of like uh, Google View or Google Street View, but it's in more obscure places. Excellent. Thank you so much. We are going to make our transition here. Uh, don't forget, right after the show, one hour after 10 a.m., the Isadora Lab with L. Wilson Spiro comes up. Incredible opportunity to learn how to use Isadora. The MIMO Live Lab with Oliver Breidenbach is tomorrow at 10 a.m., so if you're interested in MIMO Live, you definitely want to be there. Alex's panelist and potential panelist meeting is Saturday the 16th at 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time here, so if you're interested in being in a part of a panel, that's where you want to go. Also, we are headed out to IBC, and we're very excited about that. Our live coverage, it's going to take over the show on Saturday. It is going to be uh, the entire show on Saturday, and we'll be on the floor at IBC to get an idea of what the coverage is going to be like. Watch this. European members of the Office House community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies and this year we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved over on officehours.global slash IBC. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the second hour. And I'm really excited to have uh, Calvin Roberts here. Uh, he, he's going to be on in just a second. And um, uh, Calvin is an old friend of mine. I, You know, the funny thing is we were at uh, Industrial Light and Magic together, um, but we were... Um, uh, we were not, we didn't actually, we saw each other in passing uh, in, in most of Star Wars. And then um, Calvin and I worked on a short film uh, with a friend, Carl, and we got to know each other there. And then over probably, I think it's the last maybe 10 or 15 years, Calvin and I, um, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry, we got a little lost there. Um, Calvin and I... Um, has have been working together all over the world. So Calvin is was one of the people that when it comes to actually making this uh, you know, having all of this stuff come together. Um, I'm, Calvin's one of those people like Brent By and, and, uh, and Nate and, and, and a lot of other folks that we bring in, Brian Maddox. He's, he's one of the, the OGs for my, for my, my productions. And, uh, and he really is. Uh, so I, you know, I'm really, really excited to introduce uh, Calvin Roberts here for the show. Calvin, can you see us here and see us okay? I certainly do. Do you see me okay? Uh, you're 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 not moving. You're. I'm you're, not moving. Uh oh. Uh, yeah. So so I think that we have a. Uh, so for the folks on the back end, I think we need to okay. unplug and plug in the ATEM. I think if you guys are hearing me on the other side, uh, the, the this is the uh, the a we we Kevin, we've I'm not hit moving. an ATEM freeze um, there. That we, this is uh, why we usually try to get the guests in a little earlier than we just did. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. So uh, you need to un unplug that that ATEM, plug it back in again. Um, anyway, so but to give you a little background, I've worked in, I think, let's see, I've worked with Calvin in, I think, uh, I, did, I think Calvin went to Switzerland with us, but also in Cambodia and um, uh, in um, Africa, in, in Rwanda, uh, in many other, many other places, in many, many projects. And we're having a little bit of technical difficulty here. Um, uh, so the, um, 
and we're going to have we'll have Calvin back here in just a second, and then we'll start going through some slides. But Calvin has been, um, you know, uh, and he'll I'll let him give us an introduction here um, as we start to work through it. Um, we were probably the funny thing is Calvin and I just spent the last half hour uh, talking through his slides, the most prepared for this hour that we've ever been, and somehow we don't we don't have Calvin on the stage. So um, so anyway, so this is uh, um, uh, yeah. So so we'll. Um, just reading uh, through his biography, I am unbelievably impressed the number of places he's been and the things he's done. So, you wow. got me. Well, we got to just turn the camera back on. We are, you're, you're in the wrong camera. Okay, <laughs> so, I'm in so the wrong on. camera, guys. So, so, well, uh, thank you, whoever said they're impressed by my experiences and background. I have been in every continent of the world. Yeah. And, Hold on uh, one second. Let me, let me, you got to change the camera to, to, to black magic. <laughs> so we thought that this would be easier if I sent it to our office and Calvin looked so good just a second ago. Um, so, uh, so it turns out that this is not, not the easier one to do here. Sorry for the, um, for the little puzzle here, but, uh, there you there go. go. You got me now. All right. Calvin. Okay. Officially oh. welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm Calvin Roberts. I'm also known as the chameleon. <laughs> you'll, you'll see see why. You'll see why in a second. So we're gonna. What we're gonna do is, is Calvin, tell us a little bit of how you got started. You you started actually in uh, the military, right? I I actually no. I was eleven oh, yeah. Bravo in the military, but when I got out, I was in newsreel. I don't know right. if anyone remembers well, the, the newsreels, New York newsreel, San Francisco newsreel, uh, during the post-Vietnam War stuff, uh, you know, the old film days. And I was self-taught. I started shooting documentaries back then. And uh, then I ended up on, uh, I got disappointed with the industry. I joined IA. I, I had a card as a director of photography and a cinematographer. And they said, oh, you can only have one card. So I said, well, you don't hire anybody in Northern California as a DP. So I kept the cinematographer card and uh, then came back into the industry in the late 70s and started uh, freelancing, shooting. Uh, ended up working for, you know, a lot of the networks. Well, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to, and, and Calvin's uh, history goes so far back. I'm going to, uh, um, we're going to show a couple photos and then Calvin, I'm just going to have you talk over a couple of these photos. They're okay. not all in chronological order, but we tried to okay. kind of get them in there just to give, give people a sense. So. This is your family, right? That's my family. That's now, my family. Now, where did family. this start? Where was this? This is in New York. This is in Queens. Uh, that's my mother, my brothers, my, my sister, God rest her soul, my mom, my stepdad, uh, some of my, uh, my, my brother's kids. This was in 1974 when I first surfaced because I had disappeared for about three or four years during the Vietnam War period. I came back. I'm a vet, but I... I, I didn't agree with what was happening overseas. Right. So that's a wonderful shot of the whole family together. What's the, what, what are oh, we that, that, that famous picture. If you notice in that picture, that's down in the southern Philippines. That's down in Tawi, Tawi no, that's down in Cebutu, Satankai. The water is so shallow there, you can walk across it up to your, up to your chest. Uh, that's Aga Aga, seaweed farm. But the camera that I have there is an Ikigami Handy Looky HL95 dockable. And if you notice, there's a Mickey Mouse on it. Why is there a Mickey Mouse on this camera? Because I used to pull up to military checkpoints with that straddle across my waist. And often if the jeepney stopped, the, 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 the soldiers thought I had a gun and they throw their weapons down. So I said, holy Matt, I'm going to get shot one of these days. So I put a Mickey Mouse on the camera and that diffused any of that thing kind of happening. From then on, they saw the Mickey Mouse and they got relaxed. That's in Burma. I hiked for three days to get up into that area. That's the Karini area. I used to go into uh, Burma by crossing from, uh, from uh, Thailand. 
That's my sound man coming out of uh, uh, Cambodia with the Vietnamese army. We were pulling a U.S. Army 155 howitzer, and they wanted us up in front of the column. And our our vehicle, a uh, Soviet 6x6, the bed was caught by another truck that we were passing. It broke the U-bolts. The whole thing almost rolled over on us and killed us. Uh, that's me up in the uh, early 80s shooting with a CP-16, a documentary for ABC called Cocaine Blues. And, and one of the things that I, I think that is interesting is is we were talking about uh, how the technology has come so far. Oh, <laughs> you know, so. I, can't, I can't believe it. I, I, wish I, was, I wish I was doing the things that I did then now with the technology because you know what it was hard back then in fact i even have right next to me the last handy looky camera that i had each ikigami hl95b dockable and this thing was a pain to carry especially when you put a doggone recorder on it and given i hunt that, that thing all over asia given that the iphone now is is about six times the resolution of that of that camera you know as as we as we go through it um let's go to that let's go to the another next next one here where's this uh that's me heading for libya i was in amsterdam holland unfortunately i i always always carry your principal camera carry on do not check in your principal camera I checked in my accessories. They never got to Tripoli. Oh no! That's uh, that's me crossing the coming off of the Mui River, heading up to Manaplar, where the Korean forces were. That's John Everingham, the Australian war photographer. Uh, Michael Landon played him in a movie. He swam the Mekong River to get his his girlfriend out of Laos by buddy feeding from a scuba tank. That's the gear. That's uh, the that's a squad of guys that I operated with in Cambodia. That's during the Vietnam Vietnam pullout from Cambodia in 1989. That's the squad in particular, and the guy up on the upper right corner, I owe my life to, 19-inch rice farmer from uh, from uh, southern southern part of uh, of Vietnam. All the kids were uh, were. Uh, where all the privates were south and the officer was from the north. That's us pulling a one, U.S. Army 155 howitzer coming down the road through the Parrot's Beat coming into uh, Vietnam. Uh, that's, uh, that's me on the left, and the fourth person over is Paula. That was my translator in Cambodia. And uh, when I first met him, I said, you know, Paula, people are going to think we're related. And he said, nah, 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 nah. So about a week later, we, I went to interview Prime Minister Hun Sen, and some of Paula's friends walked into the office while we were waiting, and they said in C- Cambodian, they said, hey, Paula, is that your brother? <laughs> Put him in shock. Uh, one of the things that I did while I was in Cambodia, I taught these guys how to, how to fish for mines because there was a lot of mines left over in a lot of the, the rice growing areas in the country. So I got the villagers together and I taught them how to find these things. Uh, that's a classic picture of me up in the uh, mountains of the Philippines, up in Kalinga Apayao. That was in 1986. That was after the uh, political transition in 86. Uh, and those are NPA rebels. Uh, that's Cambodia again. That's a place that a lot of people don't get to. It's called Nam Da. It's supposedly the birthplace of the Khmer people. And that's a later picture in Cambodia. That was in the, that was a trip with Alex. That's uh, that's Angkor Wat. In fact, the spot that I'm standing on in 1980s was where the Vietnamese had set up mortar pits and they were lobbing uh, mortars at the Khmer Rouge who were trying to take that place. It was amazing. I, I didn't know when, when I asked Calvin to come work with me in Cambodia for a couple of weeks, um, I didn't know that Calvin had had been there a lot. So the, so when you see these pictures before, 
Um, it kind of just came out of Calvin and casual comments while we were there. Like there was no comment, no, no discussion about it at all. And then suddenly he's like, well, I was here, you know, and uh, it was it was quite a thing. Um, oh, that's me humping my gear coming off of a plane, Philippine Airlines plane in, in Tawi Tawi. That's all the stuff that, that I used to carry. <laughs> um, and this oh. is, let's see here, I think. Yeah. This is some footage that I shot during the uh, political transition of what's called the Etzer Revolution. The uh, Marcos troops were trying to take over a television radio station that was broadcasting the truth to people. And that's, that's footage that I shot that was on ABC. Uh, that's uh, I, another Alex trip. Uh, Alex got me and said, hey, man, I got three days to teach a crew in Rwanda how to do a live shot on the 20th anniversary of, of, the, uh, of the genocide. Can you do it? So I flew in and uh, in three days I trained a large crew to, uh, to switch and to operate cameras. Uh, this was, this the big was, dig, the, the hush hush, the big dig. The hush, yeah, this hush. was at the time it was a big the hush hush. This was the uh, the holiday hole by Cards Against Humanity, and Calvin uh, was managing all those cameras that were on the on the on the uh, the actual piece. And and you know this is you know obviously jumping forward a bit. Now this is jumping back to that is ultraviolet. That's my setup in in my engineering tent. Three cameras, brand new F nine fifties. I had twenty four seven support from Sony Pictures, uh, from Sony. I could call Sony in, in Tokyo and talk to somebody at two o'clock in the morning. That's the back of that setup. I had two trainees from that I guys it, I trained in Hong Kong and we put that whole system together from box in 32 minutes ready to roll. That's an interesting shot because those are China Post vehicles. We had a production meeting going into Shanghai and they said, we have a problem. We're not going to be able to drive our vehicles around because the Chinese government doesn't allow us to go to all these places with our private vehicles. And I said, what are you doing? I said, we're in China. I said, hire China Post. They said, what do you mean? I said, hire China Post, hire their trucks and drivers. They can go anywhere 24-7. And that's what we did. That's the crew in Hong Kong, the first day of training. I had to train not only the directors of photography. First one was Zhao Fei, but he couldn't get his people in. Second one was Arthur Wong that did the picture. And I had to train the whole crew on how to deal with digital photography. And this is specifically the F950? The F950 is brand new out of the box. That's me working on one of the F950s on the, on the set in, uh, in Shanghai. I check them every day before production. This is an abnormality. If you notice this, there's, a, there's a, a, a vertical line on the left, and then it just smears to all the farther left of the image. Luckily, I had three cameras. I was able to swap out boards. I figured out it was the DPR board. I called, I called Sony. I said, you got to get me a, a new board on the set. And they called me back in an hour. They said, we have a problem. The Chinese government says it's going to cost us $12,000 to ship you a board for, for importation. I said, wait a minute. You guys got passports. I said, put it in a bag. Put it in your, put, get it on the plane. Bring it to the set tomorrow. The guy showed up the next day. It was one of the principal original engineers for the F-950. And he swapped out the board for me. Uh, that's Mila. I had so much fun working with Mila. That is that is a F900 with a Panavision 100 millimeter lens. The the board of town wanted me to be second unit director of photography and DIT in Mexico for the to complete their shoot, and they did not have an EFP lens. I had to handhold that thing in the back of a car. 
That's on the ultraviolet set. That's on the, the mound for episode two. Oh, episode two, right? Yeah, that's episode two. That's Carl Miller and the rest of the crew. And we were getting these pickup shots of the lightsaber landing in, in, in the, in the sand pile. Unfortunately, it was interesting because, uh, Carl, uh, I had to call him into the set because I'm last looks on everything. I'm in the engineering tent. I said, Carl, you got to come in here, man. I need you. Please come on in. And he said, he said, Calvin, we're ready to roll. What's the problem? I said, Carla, please come in, please. I got to talk to you. And he said, what's up? What's up? I said, you got the action going from left to right. It's got to go from right to left. He said, oh, and he went out and he changed it up and we got the right shot. Uh, that's that's one of my exploits on the, on the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, buddy of mine was an iron worker and they were replacing cables and and he said, you want to go up? And I said, sure. So he walked me up the cable and I walked up there with all this gear and we got to the top and I took pictures like this. And then at the end of it, he said, well, um, the boss gave me a long lunch hour, but I got to get back now. So we better get going. I said, yeah, it's going to take me a while to get down. And he said, and, and he said, no, don't worry. We'll take the elevator. I said, what are you talking about? Why didn't we take the elevator up? What'd you make me walk this cable for? He said, ah, you got to experience it. <laughs> I, I got these a little out of order. There we go. I'll come back. Yeah, to that that's one. the one of me on top. And that's, that's, I got a call from, 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 uh, George Lucas and, and Rick. And they said, are you still in China? This was at the wrap up of, 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 of ultraviolet. And I said, yeah. He says, can you get a crew together? We need some shots of the, uh, the architecture in South Central China in Guilin for, for Star Wars episode three. And I said, sure. So I got the second unit team and we, I got an F900 from, uh, Salon Films and we went down there and shot these, uh, peaks for the Wookiee battle. Oh, that's me coming out of Kandahar. I used to go to Kandahar and visit some of the guys I knew from the Russian war. And that's me way back in the the early 80s, choppering in in Marin to some accident uh, for KGO ABC. Oh, this one. Yeah, that's me uh, dancing on 12 cameras, 12 cameras, video controlling 12 cameras on one of the uh, uh, sequences for the San Francisco Opera. Behind me is the production uh, uh, operators, all the robotics and everything, the director, the switcher, everything's all up there. It's on the fifth floor of the Opera House. Uh, that's at the East Room. You know that one well, I Alex. Think I, took that, I think I took that picture. Yeah. <laughs> so, we set up yeah. 10 cameras with Obama for the, uh, for the Google stream. And that's me uh, setting up computers on the set of Nash Bridges. I did all the video and, and computer stuff for Nash Bridges until it terminated. Don shot it in the foot. He, he killed the production. So what I think is really interesting by little, our little slideshow is, uh, is that you have been doing this for 50 years you know, like, you know, it's really about 50 years now. I'm not, you, you know, uh, you, really in it and all over. And what, what I have always found fascinating, Calvin, is that you you keep just, you, you see these technologies move forward and, you're, you, and you just keep on seeing Calvin pop up, you know, and, 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 and a lot of us get into a thing where we get into a, uh, we're doing the thing that we do and then the future moves forward and people don't, evolve. They don't evolve with whatever's happening next. And so what I think is profound, and I've always respected about Calvin and why I wanted to bring you on, is is that that there is this uh, fluidity that you've had where you just keep, you know, every new technology, you just keep in because you're you know, you're you're still working. You're still out there doing oh, yeah. doing this oh, stuff. Yeah. And 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 the um 
you know, after 50 years of doing it. And what, what do you, uh, what do you think is important to stay relevant, you know, doing something in a, in this kind of vertical for 50 years? I learned something a long time ago. Uh, you know, when I went to high school, I went to a vocational technical high school, academic high school in New York City. It was Manhattan a- High School of Aviation Trades. I graduated as an FAA licensed aircraft mechanic, but I, I only worked it for a couple of years after the service. But one thing I learned, when you have an opportunity to learn something, learn it. You may not think you'll use it, but you will, believe me, down the road. And and never turn your back off of Never turn your back on technology. Make it a point to try to learn something new every day, every day of your life. And, and that, that's what's motivated and driven me. And, and I, even now, I'm, I'm looking at the new technology that's coming out, and I want to I be able to embrace it and understand it and figure out how I can use it. And, and you know, what, are the, what were some of the moments that you just were just explosive moments? Like you saw something in technology and you were just like, oh, this is, you know, you know, that, that really jumped out for you? Uh, the, the, the main thing that jumped out to me and just really depressed me on a certain level was this, how, how things got so small. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I used to hump heavy equipment and, and, you know, you know, I used to get on elevators with my camera and, and it was always a joke. You know, someone would always say to me, I got this camera on my shoulder and they'd always say, gee, that's a big camera. It must be heavy. And I'd always turn around just before the, I got off the elevator and say, you know, when I first started out in this industry, I was six foot five. <laughs> and, you know, with, with that type of, of attitude, it, it's, it's what pushed me forward to, to try to embrace and see what's new in technology and whether I could utilize it in what I was doing. I mean, I had moments in the Philippines and in other countries. I, I didn't even have a battery, a battery charger. There was no AC to plug into. I had solar panels mounted on the back of my pack. And, and what luckily, year is this? What, what year is through the, the 80s and the 90s. And, and right. luckily, it wasn't lithium-ion. It was NICAD because right. lithium-ions, they need a regulated power supply in order to charge. But NICAD, you can have anything and, and, and beef them up. And that's what I got through in most of the places I went to in Asia. What are, the, um, what are the projects that stand out the most for you that you worked on? Well, it's uh, being on Mount Pinatubo when it erupted. That'll, that'll get your attention. That 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 really got my attention, and being able to get off the mountain—that was the key thing. Right. Um, Tiananmen Square, right? When they took and, and took the the local troops and took sent them to the province and brought in the provincial troops, and then they they crushed the uh, the democracy movement. I was right. in the middle of that, right? You know, the exit stuff, all the coup d'etats. You know, right. and all the technical challenges. I had one technical challenge in 89 when my BVU-110, it was before I transitioned to Betacam, I'm rolling on these aircraft attacking Malakanyang Palace. I'm like, uh, you know, what, 200, 2,000 feet away from, from, the, from the attack point. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, take-up reel on my BVU-110, the, the rubber roller kept coming off. I kept on losing, losing slack, you know, getting slack on the shot, and I had to reach in there and kick it back to try to continue to get shooting. You know, those are the kind of things that, that happen, but you you got to be ready to deal with them. you got to be able to, to jump in there and do what has to be done. You know, you've been on a lot of sets. What are you, from a how to hold yourself, like what do you, how do you focus yourself on a set? Um, you know, to well, what do you think are the important things if someone's entering a set or working on one um, in kind of in our technical area? What do you think they need to pay attention to? Uh, the first thing you have to pay attention to is safety. 
you have to make sure that everyone knows what their role is, what their responsibility is, and, and understands the importance of, of interacting with other people to, to maintain a, a safe environment. I've been in a couple of places where something's happened, and literally you have to tell the person, uh, you're not set for this, go home. The other thing is you have to you have to try to work through any problems that you have. You know, often on set you end up with people that you haven't worked with for some time. I used to do it often where I'd come in and and meet people who some were a little bit aggressive and antagonistic toward the crew because they felt that maybe uh well maybe we should have our people doing this instead of you guys coming in. You got to be there as a negotiator. You got to be there as a person, a communicator to 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 smooth out the waves, to make sure that everything happens. You got to make sure that you tell people, "Look, we're all here for one thing to make it work what is it going to take and i have to say that that's one of the things i always know is, is like things aren't, aren't aren't working for whatever reason or something needs to get sorted i'm like let's just go send, send calvin over there <laughs> like, just, just, he'll just, just i don't know what he's going to do over there but he's, he's just gonna he's just gonna go talk to folks and he would end up in places like we'd be still waiting to get in somewhere now calvin would already be in he'd be setting up and i was like how did you do that he was like i just we're just talking you know <laughs> next thing you know it's it's there uh chris do you have a you got a question I just uh, I just wanted to go back, uh, Calvin. You mentioned that you were doing the opera with. Uh, was that with Frank Zamacona? Oh, of course, yeah, were? Frank. I'll be working with him uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, Saturday and Sunday, I'll, we'll be together. Uh, I worked with Frank in the late '80s, and uh, I really enjoyed working with him as a director. And and I, I've been following his success, you know, doing the the opera stuff, even like around the country. It's it's been fun to watch. Interesting thing about the opera, for, you know, we set up that whole media suite in 2007. It cost $5 million to fiber the opera house. Unfortunately, the, when they first put in the gear, they called me in as an engineer and they said, well, what do you think about this wonderful thing? I said, why did you buy these crummy 310 cameras? They don't have enough light capability. The uh, lighting guys aren't going to give you anything. They're antagonistic towards you. I said, get some two-thirds chip cameras in here and they did and this was before the 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 financial crisis but i had to engineer at the opera 310s 950s eventually p1s and some 900s in the house so i had to get i had to dance all of those and i had to say to frank in particular frank in this scene do not use a 310 in this, you know, go so far in terms of the latitude of that camera and end it. Do not use that camera beyond that point. And he understood technically what I was trying to do. And that's why we work together so well. Frank has a really interesting story about the, um, are you familiar with his show Comedy Tonight? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother episode, Alex. We could, the, 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 de the rise and death of comedy because of one television show. It's yeah. it's it, it's a super interesting story. Frank will tell you. He goes, "Yeah, I kind of ruined it for stand-up comics." Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frank's and, a great and, guy, and, and and I think that that I mean I think Calvin, you probably see a lot of us see this is when we're talking to folks that people oftentimes making the decisions of what to buy aren't talking to the engineers fat no. early enough. No, no, yeah, they're not because most of the time we know how to do it. <laughs> like we and know there we was know a how. lot. Of, there was a lot of favoritism. You know, back in the early days of video, if you didn't have a particular camera, people didn't want to work with you. You know, going back to the, it's still the, the case. <laughs> yeah, going back to the handy looky days of Ikagami. If you didn't have a 79, uh, I don't want to work with you. You don't have a 79. Right. You know, you, you have, you have, have a 79D. 
D, not, not yeah, the or, or E, or, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. It was ridiculous, you know? And, and you know, I, I mean, I've gone out, I've told people, when it comes to a critical project, especially if it's a historical project, don't sit around and try to wait to get the, 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 the money to buy the technology. Shoot with whatever you have. Get it in the can, especially if it's seniors, because they're not going to be around. Right. And I can't tell you how many projects people have missed because they said, oh, I want to get this camera in order to. I said, no, I said, I don't care if it's a VHS. Get out there and get it on tape. Get it. Get it recorded. You go, ahead, Bill. Calvin, I'm really fascinated. You've crossed so many cultures and been into so many circumstances where you've had to deal with people. And Alex touched on this before, but I want to expand or have you expand a little bit on what is it that you do or is it just instinctive to make that bond happen to help clear the way so that people want to work with you as opposed to pushing back against what you want them to do? Uh, it. I look at it in two different ways. If I'm in another country and I'm working with people over there, I try to adapt myself to the country. That's why they call me the chameleon. When I was in Cambodia doing all this stuff, I wore the blue hat and the, the, the shirt of a cyclo driver. People actually thought I was one of those pet, you know, cyclo drivers, you know, and, and that way I bridged that, you know, people would, would, would have to say, oh, you're this, you know, they, when they realized that I didn't speak Khmer and that I was a foreigner because I passed as a, as a Khmer. When I was in the Philippines, uh, I did the same thing. Dress as a local, become part of the environment. And, and when it comes to state side stuff, Reach out to the people that you're going to be working with. Introduce yourself to them. Ask them, what, what, what problems am I creating for you that we can avoid? I did that on Nash Bridges. Agamon Andrianos, I don't know if you know Aggie. He's a good buddy of mine, sound man, you know. And, and when I first hit Nash Bridges and I was doing all the video and computer stuff, I went and introduced myself. I said, Aggie, I'm Calvin Roberts. I'm going to be doing the computer stuff on the sets and the video stuff. And I just wanted to work with you because I understand that this com computer makes a lot of noise. And, and if possible, I'll try to shut him off when we're close to that. And he was in shock. He couldn't believe that I would ask him and tell him that, you know, that I would interact on that level. But that's what you have to do. You have to say, okay, I'm doing this, you're doing this. How can we stop any conflict? How can we bridge that to make sure that we get to the end product? Thank Let's you. Jump. Let's go ahead and jump into some of the questions. And first question coming in from Courtney Gooden in Hollywood, California. When doing military embed reporting in the late 70s and 80s, how did you get your film or video out in time for newscasts? It was tricky. In fact, when I was, I, I was embedded in the military in the first, first Gulf War. I came up from the Philippines when they went into Kuwait. And uh, th that was handled by, by the people I was working for. Personally, when I, when I did stuff, it was really hard to get things out. It was really hard to, to, to get a, a, a courier or something to, to get the material to where it had to be, especially if it's timely material. You know, were, were you were you uh, ever doing satellite uplinks, like just playing it back out into satellite, or was it always just getting tapes back? Uh, speaking of satellite uplink, I w during the uh, political transition in 86, which is called the Yetzer Revolution, I was outside of Malakanyang Palace. And, uh, you know, the presidential security guard was there, and a couple of times they popped at us, you know, to, to try to break up the crowd. And I'm right there at the gate, and I heard this whir of a helicopter and I saw, I saw the, the silhouette of a helicopter landing behind the, the palace ground. 
And I said, holy crap, that's not a Philippine helicopter. That's an American helicopter. About 25 minutes later, it took off. And I said, holy crap. I said, Marcos is gone. And, and someone heard me in the crowd because a lot of people want to get close to you because you got a camera. They think your camera is going to protect them, you know. And they said, what'd you say? I said, Marcos just left. That, that's a, he left in that, that chop, chopper. I said, but that's not a Filipino chopper. So as it turned out, it was true. But the, the, my point is that I shot the, uh, the, uh, the portraits coming off of the balcony and all that stuff. And they sent a courier from the Manila Hotel because I was working for Larry Doyle, famous guy in, in CBS News. And, and they said, get your butt back to the, to, the, to the MacArthur suite. We want you to get on the satellite. It's our satellite time. So I sat there with my videotapes and fast forwarded, used one channel to broadcast the sound, used the other one to broadcast me talking to the people at the downlink, telling them, okay, I'm going to fast forward to the next shot and, and provided CBS with the breaking news of the shots that, that Malakan Young Palace had fallen and that Marcos had left. Next question. Next question in from Bill Davis in San Diego, California. Calvin, impressive stuff. What has been the most challenging shoot you've been a part of, and how about the most fun? Uh, the most challenging shoot was jumping into the Corinth State up in northern Burma with my camera and recorder. How long were you there? I was there for three weeks, and that's when I walked back out into, into China and ended up at, at Tiananmen Square. That was, that was the hardest one. The second part of your question was? What's I'm the sorry. most fun? Ah, the most fun. One of Alex's things, when I went to Rwanda, when I trained those guys in three, three days, a, a, ten, a ten, 10 camera crew in three days to, to do the 20th anniversary, that was fun. Those guys were sharp as a tank. You, I really you, enjoyed that. You know, I, I, it's a luxury to, to train in Rwanda. I mean, we have a school there and Calvin, you know, went down. I had to be in another production, so I needed somebody to go down there and, and help backstop it because it's a big show. Like this isn't, this is not like they did a little show. There's 70,000 people in the arena and there's, you know, we're streaming to a lot of different locations and and uh, and I had done it in the past and it was, you know, Calvin, you know, had to come down and, and make that happen. And um, the great thing about Rwanda, Rwandans is that, that they're serious. <laughs> like, they are. You, know, you, you tell are. them to do something and they, they get are. it done. You know, they like are. it's 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 quite a thing. Um, uh, next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What shoot or series of shoots are you most proud of doing? I really enjoyed Nash Bridges as a series. Uh, I really enjoyed it because I was doing a lot of creative stuff. I was doing a lot of stuff where I had to make things happen. And, uh, you know, when you're doing a, a shoot in a car on the dock and you're using a, a rain sheet across the back to make it look like it's nighttime in another country and you're feeding that into a computer with Don Johnson sitting there uh, opening up a bottle of wine and pissing off the guy in, in, in Asia that's, sees him opening up this bottle of wine, making all of those kind of things happen was fun. It was fun. It was always a challenge. And it wasn't something that was already just made and set up. It was like, this is what we want to do. How do you think we can do it? And that I always enjoyed those kind of challenges. So Nash Bridges to me as a series and also the opera house, because the opera was, was a very creative environment. What were, were two of the, what I consider to be important things. In fact, the captures that we did at the Opera House uh, saved the Opera House through the pandemic because they were able to stream back a lot of those records that we did.
Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, how do you resolve turf wars and jurisdictional conflicts in a union environment? Oh, my God, let me tell you. (laughs) I'll give you an example. I went to do a T-Mobile shoot with Alex in New York City. Remember that one? I do remember that. And I engineered all the cameras. And I'm, I'm retired from Local 16 in the Bay Area. I was a 659 guy. But when I went overseas and came back, 659 became 600. And they said to me, oh, you got to join 600 and, and you have to pay back 13 years of dues. And I said, I'm not doing that. So I went with 16. I retired. I got vested and retired with 16. The, the thing about one of the things that happened at the T-Mobile shoot was that we had local one IOTSE guys. And I told these guys, I said, I prepped all the cameras. I got the cameras laid out. I worked with another another DIT. It took two of us to engineer the cameras to get them set for the shoot. And I told the guys, I said, at the end of the day, I said, I gave you the cameras. Please bring them back to the room so that we can put them all in the boxes and get them back. And you know what? They walked away from him. I was so pissed. I went down on the street and I said, what do you guys think this is? He says, well, we normally just walk away at the end of the shoot. I said, didn't I ask you to bring the doggone things to the room? Come on, guys. I said, we're both IA. Why are you doing this to me? You know, that's a classic example of jurisdictional stuff. And and some of them ended up because they were still there bringing the gear back. But, you know, it shouldn't get to that point. We have to be together and work towards the goal, which is to complete the production, to get the thing in the can. I mean, one of the things I, I definitely learned from Calvin doing a lot of the early uh, Local 16 stuff that we had, Local 16 covers Moscone and a couple of the other things, since Calvin worked on a lot of those with me. And it was that how much it was subjective. <laughs> you know, like, you're like you learn very quickly that there's a lot of rules, but those rules are, can be, you know, like if you have a conversation and every, people can be reasonable and everyone's going to go, well, that doesn't actually make sense, you know, or this is, you know, this was only five minutes or this was only whatever. It wasn't like a, and it wasn't regular. You know, you're not constantly encroaching on someone's time or, or anything else. But I know there was one where we were trying to get out of Moscone and you know, Calvin wandered over and started talking to the Teamster because it was going to be like this truck thing and then there was going to be a Teamster call and there was all this stuff. Then Calvin walks over to me and he just goes, so if we leave right now, we can take local, our local 16 guys can take it to the dock and we can just put it in the truck. <laughs> yeah. like, let's yeah. go. <laughs> like, you know, and yeah. so we were all, but, but it's like, you know, it was, but it was all a matter of, you know, that's when I really learned how much, um, that kind of getting to know people, knowing people for a long period of time and being reasonable and having that conversation, not just deciding. Um, you know, I, I think that with unions, it can get very adversarial between the, the producers in the union or the, uh, the, unions, the unions and the Teamsters or the, you know, all of that stuff becomes adversarial, but it doesn't have to be. Like, you it know, doesn't if, have if, to if, be. if you treat people like human beings and you talk to them and you take care of them, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, subject, subjectivity that can happen in, in that area. Yeah. That's uh, my MO. That's my yeah. MO. That's what I learned I a lot. Well. Over, yeah, exactly. Over the last 10 years, I learned a lot from Calvin. Uh, next question. First of all, Calvin, thanks for being here. I have a question for you, and I think you're a good storyteller. Did you ever have trouble getting tapes past security back in the day? <laughs> I did a shoot with uh, one of my housemates, a young Korean woman. Uh, We went to Korea. Her family, she was from Korea, and she said, oh, I'm going to go to Korea and visit my family. This was uh, before Hyundai started exporting cars. 
to the U.S. And I said, oh, I'd love to go with you, but your boyfriend probably get mad. And, and he was there. And he says, no, he says, if you, you guys want to go, go. So I went to Korea. And uh, since I had ABC credentials, I went to the Blue House, which is the White House there, and I got credentialed. And that allowed us to shoot out on the street because they're very, they're very secretive there and they're very suspicious. So what happens is uh, my friend wanted to shoot some of the protest people. So we shot some of the protest people. And in Korea at that time, you had to show every videotape before you left the country. So I went to the Blue House with some of the wonderful tapes that I had of the Koreans dancing and the temples and the, the fishermen down in, in, in the southern part of the Philippines pulling up the fishing nets and all of this stuff. And I went and I showed this stuff and I said, oh, thank you so much for credentialing me. And I've got all of these wonderful pictures on these videotapes and this and that. He's, I said, but, you know, before we leave. I'll have to stop at the airport and show all of this stuff. And I have hours of videotape. And after showing them some stuff that I shot, they said, no, 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 no. Go get your tapes. Bring them all here. Put them in a box. And we'll seal them with a, with a wax seal. <laughs> that's <laughs> and that's what they did. And we got out of the country with all those interviews. <laughs> I used to, in in, uh, uh, in Zimbabwe, you know, in the, during the, um, the, the more troubled times in 2000 or 2002, we would... Uh, I would shoot. The first thing I did when I got to Zimbabwe is fill fill a tape um, with um, the bread and breakfast and them serving us breakfast. And we would shoot, you know, things of us driving along the cars and people on the side of the road selling popcorn and and uh, all these other things. And then that was the tape you traveled with. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. like that was always like. Yeah. And I tell yeah. everyone, everybody's got a camera, and you have a, you have to have a tape of you doing touristy things, um, you know, the whole time. And it didn't. We weren't shooting anything, you know, that would be particularly, but we were like, that's the safe tape. And, and I got pulled over. I got pulled over um, and they said, I need to see your camera. And they'd open it up and they'd look at it. Oh, you can go. <laughs> like, you know, and yeah. you just didn't want to even yeah. be, like we weren't shooting anything that was particular, but we didn't want it to look, like require them to think about it, you know, to, to do that. Yeah. And the next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona asked Calvin, thank you for your service. How did you get into doing wartime journalism? I'm also a vet who has considered this, but no idea where to start. Uh, uh, adrenaline junkie. That's what got me going. I mean, you know, uh, I, I used to excel on, on the rush of the, of the moment, the experience. And, and to be honest with you, I've been in some conflict situations where I can think well under pressure. And it's only after the event that I shake like a leaf. And yeah, believe me, I shake like a leaf. It's an interesting thing that I think that there's some people like I have that same. And I, 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 I'm curious to like to try to figure out like what the childhood is or something. There's something about some of us that when you put us under pressure, we just stop. We stop feeling it. I, I stop feeling things like I just I can't feel anything while I'm in it. And some people don't have that. <laughs> and, and I, and I don't think it's necessarily good or bad, but we definitely, I've had, we've had TDs, um, just stand up and walk out because it was too much pressure, you know, and, and, you know, in a live environment. And so like new TDs, because once you do that, then you're not a TD anymore <laughs> in, in a live environment. So, um, but I think that, uh, it is something that, that I, you know, I think the stress comes out somewhere else, as you said, but it doesn't happen during the show, which is an interesting no. puzzle. No. Yeah. Next question. From Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri, could you share three rules of thumb that keep you alive in conflicts or natural disasters? Uh, first thing is be aware of what your you have with you, what your equipment is. Uh, second is be aware of your environment, uh, people around you, especially because they can hurt you. 
uh, they like to gravitate around people with a camera on their shoulder. And uh, a third is uh, make sure you know where the exits are. Yeah. It's funny when we, we go into stuff, the first thing I, the, naturally, the first thing when we're in tight situations where there could be you know, any high profile thing, you know, the egress is something that we pay a lot of attention to. Um, to add to that comment, uh, in, in the Philippines, I was fortunate enough that one of my friends, uh, another vet, was working for the Lawrence Livermore Lab, and he provided me, before I went over in the 80s, with a, a, a night scope. And the, the, they weren't out yet. And it was a, a green scope. It was a little small scope. And I used that to look down areas when I was doing journalism in the Philippines, and three times it saved my life. Yeah. And two of those times was during coup attempts where I, I didn't walk into an ambush that was set up. Right. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Roscoe asks, what do you see in the younger camera folks you encounter? Are they up to doing the work you did, and does the overseas work still exist? Uh, the overseas work still exists. What I see in a lot of people, uh, when I speak to young people, most of the time when I talk about my experiences, uh, they look at me in disbelief. Uh, especially like in terms of the Philippines, I run into Filipino crews in, in the Bay Area. They've got five or six people doing what I used to do on my own. And they're in shock when I tell them that I did this. You know, I tell them, oh, I went to visit interview. I, I remember in 1986, I went to visit uh, and interview Rafael Aleto, who was the, the minister of defense in the Philippines. And I got an interview with him and I showed up. And when I showed up, he was sh in shock. He says, uh, Mr. Robert, and they always drop the S. Mr. Robert, it's just you. You have no crew. I said, sir, I'm the crew. <laughs> I set up I set up the camera. I set up the lights. I had a remote cable for my, my viewfinder. I could put the viewfinder next to me and, and have the camera look looking at the at the subject to the interview. And and I did the whole thing. And he was so amazed that he took my picture with him. You know? <laughs> but the, I, I shared this with other people and I, I I expressed to them, you have to understand you have the resources to do so much more by yourself. But you have to you have to identify what you're trying to do and you have to figure out what it's going to take to get it done. And you know, a lot of kids don't do that. I think that one of the things that's really interesting about that is that we, what's really great is to have someone who can work in a team but could do it by themselves. They know enough about all of the pieces of the puzzle to do the whole thing, I think, is something that, that, that's unique. Um, next question. From Bill Davis in San Diego, California. Any advice about schlepping gear and yourself in and out of difficult countries? Okay, you, one thing you have to remember, some of these countries that you have to go in, they require, uh, uh, some people like to go to U.S. Customs and get a document that says I'm going overseas with this and that and, and I'm going to bring it back. What I often did when I went to a country of question is I'd make a list up of all of the things that I had. And when I hit customs going into the country, I would, I, I would identify myself, tell them this is a list of the things which I am going to bring in and take out with me. And it always relaxed them when I did that. It always made them feel comfortable, especially a place like India. In India back in the day, they'd even check your watch to make sure you didn't sell it while you were in the country. So, so always make a list of a specific list of everything that you're bringing in and plan on using and taking out. That's a very important. Uh, next question. 
Tommy Shands from St. Paul, Minnesota, asking, Incredible stories. Thanks for all you've done. Were there any times your gear was confiscated as in gone? Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, I went down to Australia to on an investigation into the control who controlled the red light districts in Southern Asia, in particular in the Philippines and in Thailand. There was a particular group of people who were associated as as a mafia, and they were dealing with uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, and and jewelry trafficking uh, from Asia to Australia. I went down to do an investigation. I ended up getting surveilled for five days and getting arrested. I ended up getting an unprecedented bail release, uh, unprecedented because I met people in, in Long Bay Jail and Parramatta Jail who were waiting four and five years for a trial, expats. But uh, because Paramount Pictures, ABC, CBS, 60 Minutes, all these different people that I work for, World Council of Churches, they said, wait a minute, you're talking about Calvin Roberts. We don't believe this. I got unprecedented bail release. I ended up being in Australia for 18 months. I did volunteer work with Aboriginals, taught them videotape uh, editing and producing and and desktop publishing uh, for the Australian Council of Churches, eventually got out of the country, back to the U.S. But in the Philippines, a lot of my equipment was confiscated. One of the things that was confiscated in the Philippines was they went and they took apart my hard drive because I had done all of this research on all of these clubs and who owned them, and they dismantled my hard drive and they destroyed that that material. I lost about $100,000 worth of equipment in the Philippines. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, any stories about working with network talent overseas? Oh, Yeah. Uh, I worked with uh, G- Gary Revstock from ABC. I I worked with uh, who else did I worked with over there? Uh, I worked with a couple of people uh, with CBS. I'm trying to remember names. Uh, most of the time, I was the go-to guy. Get the shots. They would do the coverage. And a uh, good example was in the Philippines. You know, the Philippines. Uh, all of these stories came out of the political transition in 1986. A lot of our reporters went over there. Journalists went over there. You know, they were able to do that stuff because of the locals. They didn't go over there, you know, and, and Dan Rather didn't go over there or, or Mike Wallace didn't go over there. And, and, and he wasn't like, it wasn't like he created this environment. He did all this work. It was on the backs of the local people. You have to remember that. You have to rely on the local people. They're your foundation. Uh, during the ETSA, the ETSA event, I was a one-man band. I had, I had done the snap election, and then when the crisis came down, uh, my sound man had gone to Italy, so I ended up hiring this one guy, and the first place we went to, there were shots fired. He dropped my recorder. I gave him 200 pesos and said, go home. You're not, you're not cut out for this. So I ended up being a one-man band during the, the revolution in the Philippines. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I can tell you from experience that we've been out with Calvin and, and Calvin will just suddenly disappear. And before you know it, he's he's like hanging out with the locals. <laughs> he's all he's all he's like in it with with everybody else. But I always know that that's going to that's going to pay back some at some point. We're going to need something and he's going to know some people to talk to. Uh, it's, it's kind of an amazing process. Uh, next question. Bill Davis from San Diego asking if there was one global location you visited that you could go go back to today, where would that be? I loved Cambodia. I really loved Cambodia. 
in fact, uh, to, to be honest with you, I, I even had a Cambodian wife. Uh, she was a, uh, interpreter for the television station. She spoke five languages. Unfortunately, this was during the time of the Khmer Rouge and the government would change at night. And, uh, she was caught out at night in a remote province and she was killed, but it would be Cambodia. Yeah. And, and it's an amazing country. And those, yeah. Uh, next question. Next one in from Robert Green in Los Angeles, California. Follow up to the Philippines red light district story. Did your story still get out? Uh, I actually ended up working with a, a sister, Sister Mary Soledad Perpinion. I told her, I said, Sister, I'm no saint, but I understand what you're trying to do. And I used to hang around the red light district in Ermita quite a bit. In fact, it was my second office. And uh, what happened was uh, I used to... Uh, take people for her and give them orientation on the red light district. And, uh, you know, it, it was amazing. That's how I discovered all of these guys who were the managers of the clubs who were uh, in the Australian mafia and tied in. And that's what led me down to, uh, to, to uh, uh, you know, the Australia where I got into trouble. But I had no problem shooting there because, once again, I associated with people. I got close to people. I interacted with people. They were – if I had a camera on, they, they – they knew I wasn't going to step on them or hurt them. So I, I was able to accomplish quite a bit in, in the red light district clubs. And actually, one of the things that was fascinating about in the red light district, there was a, there was a, a restaurant run by some German escapats. And back in the 80s, uh, these guys were making $100 bills. They were making $100 American bills and selling them for eight bucks. And I, of course, I would never touch them. But it, the point, the fact is that those kind of things went, to, went, to, went on in the red light district. Next question. From Bill Davis in San Diego and here in our panel, is there one person you'd like to have a drink with that you wish you'd been able to meet? Uh, one person that I wish I would be, have been able to meet. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. But I know there's one per person that I used to have a drink with that I met, and I'm sorry that he's gone, and that was Tony Poe. And tell us about Tony Poe. Tony Poe was the uh, was the was the incentive for uh, the uh, Colonel Kurtz in P Apocalypse Now. Tony Poe was a CIA agent, used to drink at the Purple Porpoise in Bangkok, Thailand, with a lot of old Air America pilots. And this guy uh, was a World War II vet and and had so many stories and had done so much. And he was uh, and tied in with the uh, with the uh, the Laotians would would with uh, Bang Pao, the, the general who was trafficking heroin down to Saigon and all of this stuff. So uh, that was the guy I used to always enjoy having a drink with because, oh, the other one was, was General Kunsa in the Shan State, the, the, the big drug warlord, because uh, he was a character too. He was, uh, he was the one who Bush Sr. said, we, uh, you know, he said to Bush Sr., uh, you should buy my heroin, that way it won't get on your streets. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, he's another guy that I used to have a drink with once in a while. In fact, I made some money. I, uh, I orchestrated an interview with one of the networks, and I told the general, I said, you really should do your interview with this guy. And uh, he, he said, really? I said, yeah, it'll give you good publicity, but don't do it in your home in Bangkok. Go up to your remote area in the mountains. So when the guy went up there, you know, they, I got paid for setting up the interview, and they made the big deal about the guy traveled for days into the mountains to get to this guy. He could have got him in Bangkok, but they didn't know that. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> 
That's great. <laughs> uh, Calvin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming in this morning. Hey, it's been a pleasure. It's great to see you guys. I really enjoyed this. But, you know, we're just, we're just talking about Asia. We haven't touched on Central America. We haven't touched on Africa. We haven't touched on uh, North Africa. Another time. Another time. Those are the photos that I had. So, so we, we worked on it. So that, we'll bring Calvin back on uh, and, and have, we'll talk. We'll have more stories at some point. We've joked for a long time that we need to create a show that's called Calvin's Camera Corner. Oh, no, just... God, please. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. I'd watch that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Calvin. Really, really thank good you. To see you. Thanks, guys. Um, and thank you to the uh, to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Uh, great, great uh, first hour uh, and and second hour. And um, thank you to the incredible uh, folks watching and asking all these questions and making making this uh, actually move forward. Thanks to the thanks to the team. There's a team here that is building the software that runs this show, that's cutting this show, uh, that is also managing, making sure everybody's ready. An incredible team on the back end that preps everyone. I think that, uh, Roscoe, you, I think this is the first time you've seen the, the, the newer infrastructure. It was, it was, uh, it was a little different, isn't it, than, than the early days? Roscoe, by the way, if you haven't seen, you have, oh. Roscoe hasn't been on very often in the re- recent times. We're hoping to change that. Um, but, but Roscoe is, um, you know, he's, he's one of the OGs of Office Hours. Uh, he was here from almost uh, day one or almost day one. Um, uh, a little later, but yeah, no, back in the yeah, early days. But it's changed a little bit. We got a little more oh, infrastructure. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Just uh, the Isadora Labs. If anyone is, I, I I don't understand Isadora at an intimate level, but the labs are incredible. Just from understanding what the capabilities of the software is and what the thinking is that goes behind all this, it's yeah. really neat. Yeah. So thanks, thanks to everybody here. We uh, we traveled um, today. Uh, we traveled sixty one thousand miles, ninety nine thousand kilometers, and that is four hundred and eighty eight bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. <laughs> 